Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch, I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. We are so glad that you've tuned in for this episode. We've got a very special guest today, Dr. Esau McCauley, who has written a very important and timely book called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And um, yeah, Esau is one of the top New Testament scholars right now, and the fact that he's written this book uh, I think is very significant. And so I hope you do listen carefully take notes, read the book that he's written, and um, share it with friends, um, because I think this is going to be a game changer in the field of biblical interpretation. So one of those books that we look back on and say, you know, that things shifted when that book came out. So I hope that's the case. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome on Script Superfans. Today with me is Dr. Esau McCauley, who is an assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in Chicagoland. Um, he is also an Anglican priest. Uh, are you a priest? Yes. You have to be a priest if you're in the Anglican Church uh, of North America, a contributing opinion writer to the New York Times. I've heard of that. Um, he His publications include Sharing in the Son's Inheritance, which is part of that is that the TNT Clark New Testament series? Yeah, yeah, LNTS. Yeah, LNTS series, and and he's written. You've probably heard or seen his name in a byline at places like Christianity Today, The Witness, Washington Post, and of course now the New York Times. Welcome to OnScript, Doctor McCauley. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, you're a, a fellow St. Andrewan graduate, so we'll get into some of your history at St. Andrews here in a little bit. Um, but I want to start out with the title of this book uh, that we're talking about today, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Uh, that word, black. Um, I'll go autobiographical on you here and say, uh, I remember back when Barack Obama, the young senator, was running for president. Um, and it was very early on in his campaign after he announced when people were skeptical as if he had enough experience, et cetera. And I believe it was the Black Congressional Caucus came out and said, Obama, uh, Barack Obama is not black, um, and, and declared it very loudly and said, he is not descended from West African slaves. He has not had the whole cultural heritage of West African slave descent packed into his historical experience. Therefore, he is not a black candidate. Quit calling him that. Um, so I am wondering, when you were writing this book, in your mind, how were you defining uh, the word black? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't remember um, like uh, that particular part of what happens in Barack Obama's narrative. It's so funny how these things kind of come and go and the things we choose to remember. But what I would say is um, when I refer to black, I just refer to the collective experiences of growing up black in America. I'm talking about the cultural artifacts that exist in any culture, um, our music, our spirituality, our the literature that we that we have constructed. And so I do think that there is a thing called um, black culture. There's not a monolith. It's, mo it's multifaceted like any other um, culture. But when I refer to black, I had 
the collective experiences of growing up black in America. So Barack Obama, me, a Nigerian immigrant would be different, but they would all experience blackness in America. Because when you get put over by the police, the police don't ask you for your entire ethno um, genetic line. They just see who you are and they treat you accordingly. Hmm. I, f- I forgot you have Nigerian connections. Are, where where in Nigeria? Oh no, I have no Nigerian connections. I'm just oh. saying, like I count, I count like all of it. If you're in America and you're black, I consider it. I mean, who am I to define what blackness is? It's just like, um, yeah, I think it's the collective experiences of growing up black in America. Okay. Um, yeah, I. So it, the subtitle, the subtitle, African American, is kind of like a clarify. Reading while African American doesn't <laughs> doesn't flow off the tongue in the same way that reading while black does, and it's kind of a playoff driving driving while black. So right, it's not right, trying right. to refer to the entire African diaspora. It's actually referring to the the, the distinctive experience of African Americans. And, and driving while black being the phenomenology of being pulled over for. Who knows what reason? Uh, and and the answer is often like you walk away, nobody gets arrested, nothing ever happens. It's like, well, what was that all about? Well, driving they, while black. They did a study once, one of the ones that I thought was interesting about like how often black African Americans are pulled over by the police. Um, and there was a study that while the sun was up, there was a disproportionate amount of African Americans who were pulled over who had done nothing wrong. But that disparity went away when the sun went down and you can no longer easily see who is driving the car. So driving while black is just like the, this this common phenomenon of the black community are getting pulled over for no other reason, no discernible reason other than being black and in America. Hmm. Well, and your point about defining who's black and who's not, they actually have the equal opposite problem in the white supremacist movement where they gave up trying to define what, what you know, was genetic at first, it was ethnocentric. And then eventually when they realized that you couldn't actually support any of those views of whiteness, they just said, whoever presents as white uh, is who counts as white. um, Speaking of white, uh, you went to the University of St. Andrews, which I can personally say might be the most whitest academic space in all of Western, uh, the Western hemisphere. Um, And to that extent, I remember filling out uh, racial identification information for my children going to the public schools there. And they had like eight different types of white uh, that you could select, you know, Northern Irish white, Scottish white, Gauls white, Welsh white. Um, They had Asian, they had black or African. They had no, my two of my children are are Latin American. They had no Hispanic, right? So they had no way to identify. So I think of my my black friends in St. Andrews uh, who are all Nigerian, by the way, that's why I raised that issue. Um, How did that, environment shape your scholarship uh being in a very british english even though it's in scotland it's a very english uh white space and then do you feel like you shaped that environment or the were there discussions that were happening because you were there that wouldn't have happened otherwise yeah well i would say that i mean as you know as an academic there are no black um, phd granting institutions in the united states so of the seven or eight historically black um, divinity schools, there's some that offer D-mens, but you can't get a PhD at a historically black institution. I think that at one point, Kane Hopefelder, who's, who passed away a few years ago, was trying to get that started at Howard, but I don't think that is the case there either. So every single person who gets their PhD in North America or, or pretty much anywhere in the West gets their PhD from a, a majority white institution. The question is like how white that institution is going to be. And so asking me how much um, like St. Andrews 
influenced my education or my formation is kind of a subset of a, of, a, of a larger phenomenon is that in order to get a PhD in biblical studies, you must navigate eight to 10 years in majority white spaces where the issues and the concerns that are pressing in your community aren't necessarily respected. And the first thing that you have to do is prove that the thing that you want to talk about is sufficiently academic in order to gain a hearing. I do remember to talk about St. Andrews in particular. This is coming into, to, this is like late 2015, 2016. You will remember this. We were in the roundel. And um, it was what I call, I've called it the second Red Summer. If y'all don't know about the first Red Summer, you can Google it. But I felt like what was happening um, with, the, with the second Red Summer heading into what became the Trump presidency, there was all of these um, videos and images of um, black people being killed, innocent black people being killed. And it was, I was in the UK when the, when the um, militarization of the police was becoming pretty clear to the rest of the world. And I remember sitting in the roundel saying to people, listen, this is the problem. We need to do something about this. And I remember some of my, my fellow doctoral students <clears throat> excuse me, were looking at me like I had grown a second head. Because I'm like really passionate. Like, no, there's this problem in America with race and injustice. And we got to use our biblical scholarship to talk about this stuff. And they just like, they didn't understand it. Um, and they, I just remember having so many of those conversations trying to get people to attend to it. And so many people think, and it's funny because years later, um, people have started to email me or say, Oh, Esau, I remember when you said this, I remember when you said that, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't listen to you. And like, and so part of it was, um, um, uh, being away from America and watching it was, um, really interesting. And I think I had been back in the States. I came back to start teaching my first year heading like the, you know, like that summer. And then the election was um, that November. And so I came back into America at a very, very divisive time. And so if you think if you leave during the, you know, the second part of the Obama presidency, and then you come back into the beginning of the Trump presidency, it was like two different Americas. As far as the vibe, I don't think people remember how hopeful things felt like. And I'm not talking, I'm just talking about like what we thought the country was going to become and where we are now, or we're just radically different. And so, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, to, to wit, uh, we actually moved to Scotland on January 16th, 2009, uh, the day he was inaugurated, Obama was inaugurated. And I just remember all the, the British people. As soon as they heard that we were Americans, they're like, "Oh, congratulations on on uh, President Obama!" Like everybody was so happy for us. And then, when I was back as a research fellow, um, Trump was just recently elected, and uh, um, and it was nobody would look you in the eye. <laughs> the other thing that was really interesting is that I actually left UK the day that I flew out of um, to come back to the United States was when Brexit first passed. And so it was funny because I was trying to decide whether or not to transfer the little money that we had from our, our, our um, uh, what do you want to call it, British bank accounts to American bank accounts. And people say, well, you can just wait till after Brexit because it's not, it's going to pass, it's never going to pass. And then like it, it did and the like pound just plummeted for a long time and our money was stuck in the UK. And so, yeah, I, it's like I came, I came. We returned to the United States with it felt it felt like um, not just because leaving the UK 
which was kind of hurtling towards what became its chaos. And we were coming into the United States with our own kind of complicated situation, is what we would call it. Yeah, um, I, I'm actually, well, I guess I'm not that shocked at the Roundel. The Roundel is a place where the, all the PhD students work. Um, so, uh, sorry, I, I really want to pursue that issue more, but we should move on because I want to uh, respect your time here. Um, as I was reading this book, I I kept on reading the, uh, you talked about we and us and our, uh, use these first person plurals. And I was reading along going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at some point I realized, oh, he's not including me. <laughs> he's actually not talking to me. He's he's talking to fellow black people. I, I guess if I could just add, ask it bluntly, and I'm sure there was a pressure to do this, but why didn't you just write a Dear White Folks book where you're like, here, let me explain this to you, right? <laughs> well, be, because, and this, this, let me, this is what I try to say to people, and this is actually really important. When you go into the academy or when you go into a classroom or when you read a book, you enter the narrative world of the writer. So when I went to, you know, white schools, and this, forgive me, this is a cultural stereotype, but like I'm having to learn about Seinfeld and Friends <laughs> and Monty Python and NPR and all of these things that aren't culturally normative to me. And so when someone says to me, no suit for you, and I don't get the analogy, or they love ACD, like that entire narrative was alien to me. And so for me to function in white spaces, I had to part, I had to learn to like cultural translation. It's one of the things that happens when you become a scholar is that you then, even if you're black, you present like you you operate within a white narrative so that the students are comfortable in understanding it. What I wanted to do in this book was intentionally not center the book on the white experience. There's tons of books out there that explains, hello, white people or hello, white America or hello, whoever. Here's black people to you. And whenever you do that, there's an inevitable filter that goes up. Because I'm thinking to myself, well, what kinds of things can I say that they might understand? So you're not actually getting the experience itself. You get an immediated form of it. And so when I write a story that centers black questions as best as I can understand them, it is saying to the black students and the, the black reader, you are valuable as an object of focus. You have worth. And so in that sense, the book was really, really dangerous because people even wonder, is there a black audience who's going to read a book that is focused directly on them? But the second thing is, it, that did not mean that I didn't expect white readers to read it. That was not the point. The point was that the disorientation that you feel um, in the book is the same disorientation that African-Americans feel in 90% of the literature that they read. And the fact that, like, for example, like C.S. Lewis... J.R. Tolkien, these are all fine. Um, like the World War II analogy, V.E. Day and V. And I'm not saying the only black people, the only white people fought in World War II. That's silly. What I'm saying is the narrative world within which these things occur, right, center a certain culture. And so when you're saying, oh, why do I have to Google and figure out what this is? Why do I not get this analogy? You are getting something of the black experience in higher education more broadly. And so I wrote it that way. Um, purposefully. And the other thing that you said that was really interesting, when you say that, oh, I'm agreeing with this we, this is actually what happens, right? I don't think the Christianity is closed off, right? That the black experience of Christianity is so unique that only black people can get it. In so much as we have the, the, this common object of worship and we're and reading these same texts, there are parts where, because I think black Christians are just telling a black truth, they're telling the truth, and anyone who's on the side of the truth can 
follow along and say, oh, yeah, I find myself agreeing with this. And the truth of the matter is, if we're honest, and you could go back and you could look at, you know, from 1850s through the 1880s. Now we all look at the black abolitionists and go, they were right. My white ancestors were wrong. We look at Jim Crow and we go, well, the black people were right. The white people were largely wrong. And I know that there are people who, it wasn't just black people who were fighting against Jim Crow and the civil rights movement. What I'm saying is, at time after time after time in the history of spirituality in America, when people look back on that story, the black people are often the people who they side with. And the, the interesting thing about that is that given our long history of Getting being right about the race question, it's amazing that in every generation we're not listened to. So right now, you know, we're in this place where African American Christians are making these calls for justice. We're being seen as extreme, and then 50 years from now, people are going to look back and say, "I'm glad that there are black Christians who are saying this." So that therefore, I'm not filled with despair. Yeah, that's good, and I think. Um you make little notes in the book that I don't know if that's, I think it's for all of us, African-American and otherwise, but um, even when you got to the issue of the, the phrase runaway slave and how that already, well, maybe I could let you talk about why is runaway slave already a problematic term? Because when somebody runs away, the, the natural inclination is they should be returned. And so when you said like Unisimus ran away, the idea is that like implicitly you're saying, well, well we should return Unisimus. That's censoring the slight, Unisimus thought of himself as escaping slavery, right? So did he, did he escape? I mean, if someone kidnaps your kid and your kid makes it home, did your kid run away from the kidnapper or did your kid escape? So Unisimus escaped. So even the, the commonplace, uh, the, the stock the terms yeah, yeah. are, are already um, reinforcing a certain narrative. It's, it's, yeah. it's, reinfor- it's reinforcing a certain narrative. And in, and in the, in the, um, in the in the old well, we won't get into. I mean, this is much. The Old Testament, at least as I read it, contains the, the the whole idea that if a slave escapes, he's supposed to be allowed to be to stay wherever he can get. Like if you get there and you can stay, and you you're not captured, then you're free. At least as I understand portions of the Old Testament slave law. Yeah, and we'll come back to that in a bit because I do want to discuss the slavery as the metaphor used here. Um, so you say the black ecclesial interpretation is that's biblically faithful. You, uh, you say it actually reminded me of kind of a womanist uh, discussion. You know that uh, black inter- or black literature wasn't really helpful to to black women. It was really just uh, black male dominated and exploitative in some ways. And then, but feminism was really just rich white women, and the black women were kind of stuck over here on the side having to pick sides and who they go for and womanism emerge if that if I can caricature the movement that way but um and you say the, the black church is kind of in the same way where they're stuck between these you know white evangelicalism which cannot actually I don't think they don't have the theological imagination at this point to speak uh, uh affirmatively to the issues of the black church and then black progressive theologies on the other side so do you, do you think they're actually stuck or they're plowing their own way forward? Or you see, I mean, you seem to want to just reinforce and say, hey, let's double down on what we do best, if I read you correctly, and let's keep doing this. Um, but why, why would they be stuck in between those two, I guess? Who, I mean, I'm a little bit confused I can, uh, about the nature of the question. Okay. Um, well, I guess in the intro chapter, I believe yeah. it was interesting. You, you were saying... We- I, 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 think, I, think, I think I get what you're trying to say. What, what I tried to do in the chapter, if I'm understanding you correctly, is I talk about these different interpretive communities. And to make, it, to make this very oversimplified, you should read the whole chapter. And, and actually, what I'm trying to do in the chapter, this is really important. I'm trying to like 
create intellectual space for me to be able to live and function, move and have my being. And if I felt like when I came into the academy, they wanted me to choose a side. Like, do you want to be like, you know, a poster boy for for mainline for like white mainline Christianity? Do you want to be a poster boy for evangelicalism? And so, like my first my first decision was like, neither one of those communities felt sufficiently like the community that shaped me for me to feel home there. And evangelicalism, at least in some of his documents, claims to take. I mean, it does. It takes scripture seriously. It takes certain portions of scripture seriously. But it didn't seem to take the same portions of scripture seriously that the black church did, especially the strong emphasis on justice and liberation running throughout the entirety of the Old and New Testament. And then when I started talking about justice and liberation, I got a lot of love from my, my white progressive brothers and sisters, but they just didn't like some of the stuff that I was saying about Jesus. Now, people may say that's a caricature, but I'm just telling you as best as I experienced it. And then, and I, and I, and I want to make sure this is very clear because I, I tried to be the most careful I tried to be in um, the section of the book when I talked about the black progressive tradition. The black progressive tradition is a part of the black church. It's not separate, right? So I'm not saying that like what I'm doing is like black Christian theology and someone who is more progressive than me is, a, is not Christian or they're, they're not a part of the black church. What I'm saying is while as you look through the academy, you can find the spectrum of white voices running from right, right to left on just about any issue and every nuance in between. As it relates to kind of the black Christian tradition in print, what you tend to see are really conservative um, black Christians that are repeating the talking points of the majority culture, who as a, as a percentage of the whole are a relatively small percentage of the black Christian tradition. And then you have our black progressive tradition, which is a part of it. And you can trace them all the way through the history of black Christian belief. But they're also, to be honest, just the ma majority, the minority voice in the church. And there's this whole swath of the black Christian tradition that has a strong emphasis on orthodoxy, but they managed to do so without and, and maintain the strong call for justice and, and social transformation. And I didn't feel like there was enough of that kind of literature out in the world. And so what I was asking for in chapter one is the space to make that case. And I wanted to make that case without necessarily um, denigrating, especially the people who might exist to the left of me in some places. Because what tends to happen a lot is that like black people are just pitted against each other. And, and the other thing that tends to happen is, especially for my progressive brothers and sisters, they have sometimes a difficult chant, a difficult time hearing like my what I consider is my strand of the black Christian tradition. And what they do is they leap over me and they go and yell at like the black conservative who's just repeating the talking points. And so for so they will go, okay, you're either like with us or you're like re instant, you know, uh, undergirding white supremacy or something like that. And I said, well, hold on. There is some nuance here. And so what I was trying to do as best as I could in my book was put my finger on that nuance. And hopefully it's an opportunity to engage in the conversation because unlike evangelicalism in the mainline tradition, black Christians don't have a history of creating their own traditions. You have black progressives and black, and black traditionalists um, oftentimes occupying the same ecclesial spaces. Yeah, I think uh, that was my mistake. I, I had too much lead up to the question, and I and I was stuck on the metaphor of stuck. But you you used the pitted metaphor. I think is the one uh, you used throughout. Yeah, my bad. But thank you for clarifying that. Uh, yeah, I wonder. And this is uh, this is off script at this point. But I do I do wonder. And this is a, this is a massive question. So don't feel obliged to answer it if you don't want to. But 
It, is there a world in which the opulent wealth of the West, where you can have you know a, a suburban, isolated, white Christian community, can they actually read Scripture sufficiently and well enough on their? Oh, well, forget about sufficiently. Can they read it well? on their own uh, without ever considering any other voices and located experiences? No. Okay. And let me, let me, let me qualify that though. I don't think that anybody can read scripture alone. I don't think that like black people can read scripture alone. I think that in God's providence, we need one another to properly discern the mind of Christ. And the best analogy, and people hear that and they feel like, oh, he's saying social location exists, therefore truth doesn't exist. I was like, no, truth emerges from considering things from a variety of angles. And so the, the way the way that I like to explain it this way, anyone who's passed the congregation and they pastor in the suburbs, and they move from the suburbs to the city and they take the same books of the Bible, Ephesians, Galatians, Romans, and they and they ask the question, well, what does this text mean to young singles living in the city? And the people who are honest with themselves, they're going to say, I'm going to preach the exact same text differently because I'm now thinking about young singles in the city versus I'm thinking about married people in the suburbs. But here's the other thing that you're also going to have to admit. Not only are you going to preach differently, you're going to notice things differently when you ask different sets of questions. So you may say, oh, I never thought about this aspect of the text, but now that I'm asking myself, how does this speak to people at the end of life, I'm starting to see its relevance. And so the people who communi- who, who, who populate our imagination help us read the text better, or sometimes people who populate our imagination help us read text more poorly. So it's, it does both things, right? And so you may say, well, I know I can't say this in this congregation because if I say this, I might lose my job. And so there's these hermeneutical walls that we put up. Now, if that's the case, then well, what happens when you begin to ask this question? How does this text, it's 1965, how does this text speak to an all-black congregation on the aftermath of like the Martin Luther King? I mean, like aftermath of the March on Washington or something. You see how, like once you start asking that question and you populate your congregation with these people in mind, new insights pop out. But they aren't the only insights. That's the reason why I think that we need the body of Christ to properly discern um, what these texts say. And so I don't think of African-American biblical interpretation as the magical key that unlocks all doors. But I do think that it has a distinctive gift to offer to the United States. And the reason it's particularly useful for the United States is because... This is not it's not a good thing to be to have a long history of oppression and to be this. It, that's not a good thing. But when the Bible is written from the perspective of the oppressed, well, Israel is often um, economically and politically weaker than its enemies. And even the people within that who are writing these texts are writing to where they have no power. This is like the kingship of Yahweh and the Psalter. This is a perfect example. Yahweh as king is their way of saying when when the government doesn't, when the, the kings don't do what they're supposed to do and the nations are in an uproar, we have only God and his sovereignty as the means by which we might find hope. Now, the African-American who also finds himself, who finds himself with, or herself without any political power can feel in a deep way what it means to rely upon the kingship of God. Now, we in the dominant culture, 
and you have the ways to imp, you know impose your will through the political processes because you're associated with power, can you understand the importance of God as king? Yes, you can, but it's more of a hermeneutical leap of imagination. And so it's helpful then to have different people from different perspectives so we might open up these texts properly. And so the answer to that question is I don't think that anybody can read scripture by themselves. And, not, and this is the Anglican in me. Not only do we need to do it like across culture now, we needed to do it across time because we are all living in the – like we're all trapped by the sets of questions and issues of our day. And sometimes turning to Augustine or turning to someone who existed in a different world might help us out of our cultural blind spots. And we all – anyone who studied history can look back at certain eras of history and say, oh, my goodness, during this 150 years – the entire culture had this thing wrong. And so it's possible then that we're all, all of us who are walking through this world that we exist in now have a similar delusion. And so not only do we need to like cross cultures in the United States, we need to read, we need to listen to what's going on globally and we need to listen to what's been going on across time. So reading while black then is one gift from the black community to the church precisely because we are one culture that has something to say about um, God in the world. Okay. You're hitting all my sweet spots here. So let me turn the screws because you said we, we all need this help, but actually I think you said something slightly different and I hope you meant to. Uh, if, if the Bible is written by a people who are long oppressed uh, to others who are long oppressed for the most part, that's, that's a lot of what's going on. Then it's not just that we, it's good to hear other voices. It's actually that maybe other voices that should be prioritized, right? That we should listen first to, uh, to these people. Uh, I, you know, I've thought about this because I deal, I'm a Hebrew Bible teacher, so I have to deal with freshmen who are traumatized by all the violence in the Hebrew Bible and, and, got, and divine violence at that. And, and I realize that they have no imagination that allows them to think about what it would be like to live in you know, an ISIS-controlled Raqqa or, um, you know, some place where violence and corruption and sexual exploitation are endemic in this system. Um, and that our brothers and sisters in Christ who actually have lived in those circumstances maybe should get priority in helping us to understand these texts. Would you say something similar? Yes. Um, I mean, I would say it with some qualification. Um, what I want to say is I believe that social location is important. And I do think the social location can help us. I think that we always have to be careful that our social locations don't eclipse the text. And so I don't want to, I don't want to make it, I don't want to make the statement that it's impossible for someone who hasn't experienced oppression to read the Bible properly. But I would say there is a long history, and maybe this is what I would say. So what I'm saying is once you make an absolute an absolutist claim, then you get an absolutist rebuttal. What I would say is there's a long history of people in power reading these texts poorly. And there's a long history of people without power of reading these texts well. We should consider that when we start looking at biblical interpretation. That is a fantastic um, summary. <laughs> yes. So that's what I would say. Rather, rather than making social, I mean, because like there's social, socially located readers who I disagree with. And, uh, and like black people, like what I'm saying is all black people, for example, don't read the Bible the same. Now, we do tend to highlight certain we, we are we are similar in highlighting certain blind spots, but I don't know if we all articulate 
the solutions in the same way. And part of the constructive work of theology is not just the deconstruction of poor readings, but the construction of helpful readings. And once you start getting into the construction of, of, of helpful readings, then you're getting into the work of theology and those kinds of things. And, you know, we're there are people who are better at it and the people who are worse at it. And people might say that I'm worse at it. So I'm not speaking as the infallible source, but just giving you an idea of what I mean. So, yeah, I think that you should listen to oppressed voices, but it's paternalistic to not engage it. And maybe this is what I want to say. There's an overcorrection that I see happening in certain white spaces. And that means like either this this might be this might be long. Forgive me. I'll put it this way. <laughs> I'm loving it so far. So there's there's two things that I see happening. One is because people are so afraid of what happens when they lose control of the exegetical center of all things, there is a strong reaffirmation that this is how you do Bible, that anyone who steps out of side of this Bible, this way of doing Bible, is kind of abandoning the faith and they're gonna do A, B, and C. And there's this strong like rejection of any hint of social location at all. That's one error. I think it's a ridiculous error, but that's fine. The other error that I find is um, equally prominent is that some white Christians are so caught up in their guilt of the, their own failures or the failures of their um, ancestors. They're just saying, I'm just going to find a black voice and I'm going to amplify it. That's just, a, that's paternalistic. So like black black scholars deserve critique. What I'm saying is deserve, not saying that their scholarship warrants critique, but it warrants real analysis. And so I don't want people say they appreciate my voice. I say, no, appreciate my scholarship. Like I'm exegeting text here. I'm doing real work. And so if I'm doing real work, it, it deserves to be taken seriously. And so that means that as, if I encounter a black, if I encounter a black, a black writer, the greatest respect that I can give that person is to take their argument seriously and articulate disagreement. And so, for example, we need, we are in desperate need. The Academy steps on the voice of, voices of black women. Like, black, black women of color in the Academy are, like, so underrepresented. And so, on one level, you want to say, we need to lift up this, this we need to create space in the Academy for women of color. But we also don't need to be paternalistic. These women of color don't just deserve to be read and put in 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 um, syllabi. That is part of it. But part of the academic experience is real analysis. And so I, it doesn't mean that you're going to find more errors in a woman's writing. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they deserve analysis. And so I am hesitant to say, oh, we should just lift up black voices because that can, that can be its own form of paternalism. What I want to say is we should lift up and engage black voices, not simply as someone who's adding a little salt to an otherwise bland syllabus, but as an ongoing dialogue partner from beginning to end. On that note, where you couldn't have set me up better for my next question, um, I want to uh, critically engage your work. Come for me. Come for me. Let's do it. And, I, and I'm actually doing it in the sense of while I'm abusing my privilege, I have you here. I think I might have a disagreement, but I really want to be corrected if I've misunderstood something as well. So the issue of slavery, and I and I and I and I do wonder if social location can also. Well, I know it's it can happen. Social location can override uh, your sense of understanding of the text as well. On the other way, so post Jim Crow, post uh, the structures of peculiar institution that worked themselves out in America, uh, are we too averse to the slave metaphor? And I say that in the sense of you know I, I read through these texts every semester with students. 
And I've just come to notice that being a slave to Yahweh and being a slave to Christ and a slave to our Lord is actually not offensive. It's it's used right in the same text that uh, liberation from Egypt is used. And that there's also that slavery itself, even in the Exodus narrative, doesn't seem to be the target of the critique. It's the oppressive, ruthless nature of the slavery. So I'm wondering if slave is actually a redeemable metaphor, maybe one we should suspend for a while and come back to, but if it's actually, if it's a good metaphor or if it's just overly distracting in in certain communities. Well, it's interesting because I don't address the slave metaphor in the chapter. Oh, no, so I know. Really, I kept waiting yeah. for it. And <laughs> so I, here, here's the thing, though. This, 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 is, this is what I was attempting to do in the chapter. And it was by no means an unbiased reading. And I'll answer your slave metaphor question. I'm not running from it. But I was trying to ask the question, and this is, once again, one of the, I think, the errors that we make, is does the Christian tradition give us the resources to, to dismantle slavery? And... And can an honest reading of the text actually do that? And taking the most difficult text as serious as we possibly can. Now, as we, and so like, I think that's an important intellectual exercise. And I think it's an important thing for, especially in African-American Christian writing on hope to do, because this is the question I think that's behind all questions. Now, as it relates to, to, to the metaphors in the Bible, I feel like I need to do some work on linguistic theory because we've had a linguistic turn in the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years about how language works and what metaphors do and whether or not language, the language that we use serves to like instantiate or support things or whether or not they reflect things. And so we do find ourselves putting a linguistic philosophy onto biblical text that are alien to them. Like, and that's just that's just like a comment. I mean, that's just like the, the idea that exists now that like, okay, in so much as you use these things, you you support an under underlying structure that keeps these things in place. And therefore, since the Bible uses these metaphors, it, it, are, it, you know, it is flawed in that reason. I, I feel like I need to do some more reading on how um, language philosophy works. But I do want to say this. There are tons of things in the Bible that are proper to God alone that aren't proper to human beings. So, for example, if someone says to me, denounce Drew Johnson or die, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to denounce Drew Johnson and <laughs> go on with the rest of my life. If someone says, like, I have a, a unshakable faith in Drew Johnson, I don't have an unshakable faith in Drew Johnson. I have an unshakable faith in Christ. And so, like, there, 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 there are things that, are, that, that remain true of God that the moment that they become human become problematic. Now, the Bible does not have, as best as I understand it, any concept of the completely autonomous individual. You're either under the kingdom of darkness or you're under the kingdom of light. This is how the Bible thinks of in binaries. And so the, the, the language of slavery to God is a way of talking about the utter devotion that, that, that the believer has to God that is different than the, a human being imposing its will upon um, another human being. And so whether or not it's the language that I would use um, is another question, but at least I think I can make sense of um, of uh, how the Bible uses it. And what I, I use this analogy in my classroom is that we will say things like "I stand Beyonce." This is like not an overly controversial thing, but like the song, the, the idea of "stand" comes from the the um, uh, Eminem song where the guy's a stalker. Right? right, who cross all kinds of boundaries. I'm saying, right? So when you I don't say, know. I'm yeah, trusting yeah, you. Trust me. Yeah. You, yeah. So, like, so when you say I stand someone, you're saying I'm a fan of this person. You're not actually intending to connotate 
all of the things that comes from that song about the person being a stalker about the artist. You're just saying, I'm a fan. And so when you say, I'm a slave of Yahweh, it doesn't mean that like God has some desire to sexually abuse me and beat me and do these other things to me. It is a, it is a limited analogy. And so whether or not every limited analogy is appropriate in every setting, I'm not sure that I want to say that like um, that the limited analogies are therefore like off the table. Because like when Jesus says he's coming like a thief in the night, it doesn't mean he's going to break into your house and stab you and steal your gold. It just means to like the unexpected nature of it. And so I think that it's possible, even in the way that we use language now, to speak about the limited range of analogies. Now, the other truth of this is some analogies for a variety of reasons become inappropriate. And if we're in a place now with that analogy, so for example, um, there are all kinds of like there are all kinds of ways which if you're in a traumatized community, there's just language that just, just doesn't become appropriate. So whether or not it's a, like I I have some invest some vested interest in saying that like a Christian today has to be able to say that they are a slave to Christ is less important to me, like saying the words, than understanding what the author intended to communicate through through those words was the fact that he was utterly devoted to Jesus. Or Yahweh. Yeah, no, that's that's good, and I think everything you said just falls right within what I would say the biblical theology of Exodus is: is the goal is to transfer from a slave slave to Pharaoh to a slave to Yahweh, who is a just, wise, loving king. Yeah, and it's, it's a slave to sin to a slave to Christ. What I'm saying is, we tend to think of, and I try to get my students to understand this too, that like I, we tend to think that their students tend to think that they're independent, and then they become Christian. And the biblical text say, no, you are a slave to sin. And then you go from being a slave to sin to being a slave to Christ. So um, the idea of the autonomous individual is a category alien to the biblical text. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm so glad to hear that your students think that as well. Uh, <laughs> they come in thinking that. Um, okay, I have uh, we have a, an on script. We traditionally do a speed round with all our scholars, which is basically um, short questions with short answers. Um, maybe I'm even mad at short answers. Uh, they, so maybe we'll even a one word answer. Some of these might make you mad. I don't know. We'll see. Okay, um, who should write the book "Reading While White: An Anglo American Interpretation" as an exercise in hope? Or should anybody? (laughs) Interestingly enough, there's a book called The New Testament in Color that I'm writing that's coming out um, sometime. (laughs) When people stop asking for interviews for Reading While Black. And the whole point of, (laughs) and this this is actually important because Reading While Black was a particular thing, a a book that I felt called to write in the moment. But The New Testament in Color is what I want to call like the flip side of it. In The New Testament in Color, we bring together black, white, Asian, and Latino American, and Latina American scholars to write a single volume commentary of the New Testament. So, you know, you have one person doing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all the rest of the books of the Bible. And then we have these chapters, um, these kind of um, entries into the uh, thing about African-American interpretation, Asian-American interpretation, different issues, you know, immigration. And we actually said we should have someone talking about how, like, how to, how do you read the Bible as a white person after, like, you've kind of come to understand social location. So that chapter does exist and it was written by Michael Gorman. Huh. And so that, that'll be good. So if you're wondering, if 
you're wondering, and I forget what it's called, but it's something along the lines of like, how do I understand my social location as a reader, as a white reader? So you made the joke, but like I was ahead of you by 18 months. And there we go. Well, I wrote that <laughs> so question two years ago. So there. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Michael Gorman. Michael Gorman. Michael Gorman's writing. Hold on. Who's, uh, who's putting out that book, by the way? Me. I'm putting I mean, out myself. I'm just kidding. It's, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. <laughs> it's, uh, it'll be in a varsity reference. Okay. Um, cool. Thing. Cool. Cool. Uh, you're from Alabama, correct? Yes, sir. Um, uh, see, the fact that you said yes, sir, is uh, the telltale sign. Um, Indicative. Uh, which flavor of knee-high soda is the best? And there is a correct answer here. Purple. <laughs> I'm sorry, it was peach. Uh, it's okay. No, it's purple. You'll be, Grape. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so you're having lunch with our friend Tom Wright. Uh, yes. Do you call him Tom or Professor? He calls me Professor. Ooh, nice. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to tell him that. Uh, um, no, um, I call him Tom. We're friends. Yeah, yeah. It's hard. Once you call him Tom, it's hard to, to go back from it to anything it's else. Funny, the, other, the, the other funny thing about it is um, now when I refer to Tom, yeah. it, it sounds like a flex. Oh, like when totally. You're in the, like when you're like, oh. Yeah. Um, I was emailing so, with Tom the other day, and they're like, who, Tom yeah. Wright? And then, of course, my yeah, students don't yeah. know who that is because they only know him as yeah. M.T. Wright, whatever. So. Yeah. So it feels like a flex, but no, it's just like, yeah. Yeah. I got bigger flexes than Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I got a couple. Yeah. I'm not going to play them, but I got a couple flexes you, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you, you are becoming a flex now. Okay. On a, oh, really? That's, that makes you feel good. On a uh, I mean, I, does it, should, should it make me feel good or should it trouble me? It probably should trouble me. Uh, I have a colleague yeah. who has a whole spiel to, that he gives to younger colleagues about becoming Christian famous. Uh, and it's a pretty... He he became Christian famous and got off the bandwagon, and it, it's a it's a good spiel. But I think you're I think you're doing okay so far. It seems like no. I, I mean, I would tell people like I as what I I don't I I think it's very dangerous in people. I, I don't like the language of platform. Oh, I hate God, that word platform. Yes, I hate um, <laughs> and people are what I try to say is as a Christian and like, and maybe this, this, this is the truth. I'm like a, I'm a bad New Testament scholar in the fact that I was a pastor first. Right, me too. And I was yeah. a pastor, I was a pastor for a decade and I, I love the Academy, and, but I, I consider the Academy as like my accountability partner to keep me from making bad arguments. Right. So I can't just, I can't be reckless. And so I see the Academy as an important dialogue partner to make sure that my scholarship is careful and helpful. But like my eye is always turned towards the church. And so because my eyes turn towards the church, sometimes the things that I do feel more public and accessible, but it's not in an attempt to build a platform. It's just like I'm incapable. Like I would feel like it'd be a waste of my time. And not to say that the on-script audience isn't wonderful. It'd be a waste of my time to write books that only spoke to other scholars. It didn't make its way to the actual lived experience of the people. You know, so when my church was 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 preaching to me and teaching me and people were praying for me, they weren't saying, Esau, one day we want you to go and and like defeat 15 other Galatian scholars <laughs> about some point on Galatians 321. They're saying, Esau, we hope that one day something that you do is useful for the body of Christ. And so that was like that was my academic philosophy. And if that has meant that I've then had, like, no, I didn't try to write in the New York Times. I wish you should ask me how I ended up doing that. It just happened. It literally just happened. Random. Well, Christian would say it's providential, but that wasn't a goal. Um, 
one person, it was funny, you know, the internet as well. Someone said like, Esau tweets stuff because it's controversial and then it sells books. I was like, do you realize what academic books don't pay you any money? You think you think I'm retiring off off, off, off IVP checks? That's not what happens. And so I, I don't find any of um, the public stuff all that appealing except for the fact it allows me to speak to normal Christians. Um, so no, you can, you can keep the platform and if it goes away, if it all goes away, then it'll just be, it'll give me more time to write. That's the thing. So on that note, I actually have another question here. Are you put off that OnScript is interviewing you about reading while black and not sharing in the son's inheritance? No. Excellent. Um, because, um, sharing and sharing, I have to be careful because TNT clock is the publisher and I think it's a good book. But Sharing in the Son's Inheritance is the book that the Academy made me write to show that I could do it. Reading My Black is the book that I got to write once I got in the door. So Sharing in the Son's Inheritance is to say, and it's a good book and I enjoy it and I will come back to Galatians later. But it was more of like, I'm competent. Like, don't come for me if I didn't send for you. Um, but this is the other thing that we need to do. Because black socially located scholarship tends to not be taken seriously. And so my my... What I'm doing, though, I'm not just writing like some emotional memoir saying care about black people. I'm doing exegesis. And so um, I'm not at all put off by that. I'm actually glad. I mean, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't mind if you um, inter- interviewed me and sharing in the son's inheritance. But no, it doesn't bother me at all. And most folks don't have $100 lying around. So f- shockingly, sharing in the son's inheritance. I mean, inheritance. it's part of why I'm in this business is I get a free copy of the book, so. There we go. Um, and the other thing is, like, um, it just a, it's a radically different book. People have, like, gone back and bought sharing in the son's inheritance after reading my black, and it, it's just it's way different. <laughs> I actually tell Even people, the register. Yeah, don't do that. Like, I, I, had, yeah. I had students read part of my monograph once, and they're yeah. like, I couldn't understand anything you were saying. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I wasn't talking to you. I wasn't talking to yeah. you. Yeah. And so, like, I, I have to balance not, I have to balance because I don't want the publisher to get mad at me saying don't buy the book with saying don't buy the book. <laughs> we know. As far as we if, know. if you want this, if you want this kind of stuff, it's not yeah, there. Yeah, we feel it. Um, on a scale of one to seven, how afraid are you that you are going to become pigeonholed as just like the representative black thought guy? Um, I haven't really thought about it because, well, it's interesting because there's always a lag and this is what people don't understand. You write a book and then like, but you started, like I started this book 2017 so now people are are excited about this book, and they will, I have to go back in time to when I wrote it. But the next book that I'm writing is an intentionally multi-ethnic book, right? The the book that I'm working on after that is a book about Lent, right? The, and so like people may think that you know reading while black is the only thing, but I'm already working on something that's a little bit different. And so in that sense, I'm not worried about being pigeonholed. I felt like that was a book that I needed to write at the time. I wrote it. I'm glad that people are responding to it. But um, I got I got a lot of different stuff to say. And the other thing is, like, black there's enough black voices now that exist in the culture that, like, no one person should be seen as a black representative right. and definitely right. not a black Anglican. Yeah. Uh, that's good. Um, easy question. Uh, what biblical or theological work has had the greatest impact on you as a thinker? I would say like the 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 primary the, the thing that's had the probably the, the biggest impact on me 
were the speeches, uh, the, the speeches and sermons coming out of the civil rights movement. So you don't understand me unless you understand the black church from like 1950 to maybe 1968, uh, maybe even a little bit before that. And so that is the narrative that like shaped me as a kid. And then the Southern black liberation tradition. And people don't understand the distinction when I say that, but each one of those things are important. And you should look it up and learn about it. So I would say those things are um, important to me. Yeah, you were going to ask me something? No, I was actually just writing down, and unfortunately I was speaking while I was writing. <laughs> okay, the other thing, as far as like something that inspired me at the time, I'd have to go back and reread it, but I remember when I read Jesus and the Victory of God um, by N.T. Wright, and what I really enjoyed about that book was its intellectual adventurousness. And that even, like, Tom had a um, a strong command of the field of historical Jesus scholarship. And it, the footnotes, I just found them endlessly entertaining. And it was the kind of scholarship that made people mad. And I felt like, oh, this is the person who's not afraid to, like, carve out their own space. And so as someone who gave me intellectual energy to carve out my own space, I would say that that would be Tom. Now, it doesn't mean that I agree with all the conclusions that he made. I just like the fact that he wasn't afraid to ask those kinds of questions. So I would say the writings of Tom Wright in a variety of ways influenced me. I would also say, sorry, this is a longer introduction. Another mind that I found really intriguing was um, Benedict XVI um, back when he was post-Ratzinger. And I like how he did biblical studies because he took um, the history, uh, the patristic tradition seriously. He took theology seriously and he took biblical interpretation seriously. So I would say um, Benedict would be someone else. Who what was that book he put out? Um, Jesus, the, the really famous one, Jesus, the... Yeah, he, he did like three or four of those Jesus books. That I, I read one parts. in German when I was when I was pretending like I could read German. Uh. Yeah, so I, 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 like, I, like, I like Benedict and Tom yeah. mixed in with some black church, and you come out, and this is me. It's quite a mix. Um, at the SBL, the Society for Biblical Literature annual meeting, what kind of person or situation do you hope to avoid? I hate small talk at parties. Like, I'm very bad at networking. And I find the whole thing somewhat fatiguing. So I'm the king of being at like one of those parties and just leaving and going back to my hotel room. And so um, it's really it's um, it's really interesting. I, w- I remember there's like the, the, the stages of SBL evolution where, you know, at the beginning, you're just saying some some somebody please listen to my paper and like. You go. I, actually, this is what I will say. I remember trying to get into PhD programs, and they would say, "Well, you should go to all of the parties." So I went to the Scottish party, and the British. I was like, "Maybe I will see a professor and shake their hands, and somehow that will indirectly get me into the school." And I remember like sitting around as like the only black person in those spaces, saying, "This is stupid," and going back to my room. And saying, if you don't want to, if I don't get into a school because I didn't shake this guy's hand at one o'clock in the morning, then like I don't need to get a PhD that bad. So I, um, I and, and the other thing is, so I tend to still go to those things, mostly just to see my friends. So it's much more of a relational, not a networking thing. So, yeah, I, I don't like to glad hand people. 
but I am friendly. Uh, well, I was going to say, so you said small talk, but I, I think it's fair to say that probably a scholarly crowd might be the hardest, in some in some cases, the hardest group to small talk with. So in, in normal crowds, like hanging out at church, are you up for small talk, chatting, getting chatted up by somebody, as they say? Yeah, I mean, no, like, sorry. It's just like what I'm saying is it's the particular dynamics of um, a young black man trying to ingratiate himself to a majority white culture to get people to pay attention to his ideas, which is not just unique to me. It's that all, you know, academics have that same kind of problem. No, no, I, f- so, I definitely know exactly uh, the dynamics. So, like, that's it's that. <laughs> I don't have a problem with, like, generally talking to people. Um and so no, like I think I think you can tell from this podcast, I'm not an inherently hostile person. Um, not yet. So no, I've been enjoy, trying though. If, if, we'll get you there. If you, if, yeah, <laughs> see what you can do. But like I'm, I'm pretty quick on my feet. Um, okay, final question, and we ask every single guest the same question or some version of it, and it's a simple one. Uh, what is the single greatest book in biblical studies in the last fifty years? No idea. Um, the single greatest book in biblical studies in the last fifty years. I don't even think I've read enough biblical studies books to like really fifty years. What year is that? Uh, actually, nineteen. I I actually could use my own birth date to figure that out. Nineteen <laughs> seventy. Yes. Oh man, the best. There's no way to answer that. The most question significant. Well. How about that? That would make it easier. The most significant. I mean, I don't know how you can't say it's E.P. Sanders. That's a, that's a very popular answer. Very popular answer. I think that. Um, I might say, I'm not going to start tossing out books that I like. How about that? I think some of Richard Hayes' early work on intertextuality were definitive for the field. I think that people, I mean, like people, like this would on script, y'all need to leave Tom alone. <laughs> I don't think Tom, like people hate on Tom, like he's some kind of popularizer. Like he didn't, like he didn't say some of y'all faith and all of this other stuff. So like, but the question is, which Tom Wright book do you give the love to? And I'm going to say Jesus and the victory of God as being an important one. Um, people don't like Paul and the faithfulness of God, but I'm still going to, I'm like the last person riding for that. I, I, I um, actually, I really, I use a lot of that. Yeah. So I would say that, I mean, I would say like, it is just, dis, it's intellectually dishonest to like not talk about Tom's influence on the field. Um, I think that, that, um, Paul and the Gift will be read for a while. Yep, that's the most popular answer. Um, I, I mean, can I? Well, no, I need to leave Paul. And, I mean, I like Paul and the Gift. <laughs> no, no, let's hear. It. Leave, Look, treat him like a scholar. Let's hear what you got. Treat him like a yeah. scholar. So the the, the re, this is what I want to say. Paul and the Gift is a great book, and in so much as it's trying to answer a particular question, it does that well. But the way in which it is framed, not by John Barclay, but by the rest of the guild makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And this is what I'm I'm trying to say when I say that. We pretend like the question of grace is the only question that we need to answer in Pauline scholarship, such that when people say that you've written the best grace book, you've written the best Paul book. And I don't think that those things are synonymous. What I'm saying is there there is, and justification is an important idea in Paul. I'm not trying to say that's not important. But we feel like Pauline scholarship, which is like, in the culture of biblical studies, like the championship belt of biblical scholarship more broadly, the person who's written the best book, the most recent good book on justification or grace is thereby doing the most important work. And that is centralizing a question that I think is most prominent in Romans and Galatians that isn't prominent across all of Pauline scholarship. So what I'm saying is, if I were to write the definitive book on Paul and slavery, 
like a classic. Because I'm talking about slavery, it would not be seen in the same way as the book on grace. Even though in the African-American community, the question of how to make sense of slavery is a much more pressing question. Like we're not, we're not um, trying to under, like we, I mean, we're fine with saying the grace of God saves us as a people as a whole. And so I don't have any problem with John Barkley or like that book. I actually think it's amazing. When I talk about grace, I use it. What I want to say is there has to be room for how we analyze Pauline scholarship. And so when we say that this book on grace is the most important book in the last 50 years, it means that like finally solving the Reformation question about grace is the most important thing that we can do. And I want to ask the question to the listener, would black America agree with that assessment? Would, 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 like our, would our Asian American brothers and sisters, would our Latino um, brothers, and, Latina brothers and sisters, would they actually say that? They say, what is the first question we need to answer as biblical scholars? Would they say, we need to figure out like the perfections of grace? Now, that doesn't mean the perfections of grace isn't important. It doesn't mean that I have, like, I, like it feels bad because it's not John's fault. But it's like, it's the way in which like certain questions get centered in biblical studies. And that's the reason why I like reading while black is a, it's like a turning over of the tables. How do we go? Here's the question, biblical scholars. Why do we never talk about policing in our scholarship? When black people have been talking about policing for 150 years. Why didn't we talk about it? And so what I'm saying is we have to do better in the things that we center. And, and, there, and, and there's, a, there's a reason why, like, this is all, and this other, it's all masculine. Right? It's all masculine. In the sense of, like, even when you look at the, the, the kinds of things that our female scholars, I'm not saying female scholars don't write about grace. I'm saying look at their interest and look at the things that they write about and do we consider those things worthy in their own right? And so I'm very hesitant of saying, like, whatever book is about, the most recent book about justification is the most important book, which may which make make it weird to say. Well, like this is the reason why I struggle with saying, well, we got to say Paul and Palestinian Judaism because it it reinvigorates this discussion of Paul. But it's also like it's a part of what I want to hope is the broadening out of, of biblical studies. Um, I said that was the last question, but I just want to steal yeah. one more minute of your time on this issue. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yes, I'll answer one yeah, more. No, yeah, no, I think it's it's so important what you just said about how the Protestant Reformation hang up that's still 500 years later. And this is, I do wonder if that same Protestant Reformation hang up on grace and justification today, though, and why Paul and slavery or why Paul and power dynamics or something like that is not as sexy to us is because you can well, I don't know how to say it politely. You can argue infinitely about it in ethereal space and it never has to get grounded in a body. I mean, you can talk about how it comes down see, to the body, but... See, see, this is the question. So when I say that, and people think I don't care about justification. But yes, I think, oh man, we, we, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that we know that we have stopped talking about like Paul and the gift that we're talking about New Testament scholarship more broadly. It is a manifestation of privilege to spend two. 200 years arguing about the way that we should think about something and not while at the same time ignoring so many issues in the biblical text that touch directly upon the lived experience of oppressed peoples. And I say that as someone who thinks justification and grace is very important. It just isn't the only thing. And we know it's not the only thing because Paul wrote a bunch of letters that talked about other things. Like the spirit, you can write the. Here's another example. You can write the best book about Pauline pneumatology that you want. We would never consider it the best Pauline book. 
So you should really ask, what's the best book on grace in the last 50 years? And then I could say, Paul and the Gift. You see what I mean? Like, you see how the question of like Pauline scholarship is actually the question of what's the best justification book? So that's, that's what I want to push back on. And all of the people who are doing messianism, pneumatology, ecclesiology, sacramentology, Trinitarian theology, they're all saying a hearty amen. Everybody who's doing the wider canon. Let me, here's another one. You can write the best book on Hebrews ever written. Nobody will call it the best New Testament book. So there's a problem, is what I want to say. Well, Dr. Esam Macaulay, thank you very much for spending this time with us at OnScript. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.